There's an issue that has uh, been a consistent issue uh, throughout the Bible and and uh, and since Jesus Christ's ministry right up to today, and that issue has been an issue of timing, an issue of when. When will Jesus come? When will he return? When will he come back and establish his kingdom? That is an issue that has existed throughout time in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and, and ever since Jesus Christ was on earth. When is this kingdom of God going to be established that the Bible talks about? Once you look at these verses, they'll be on the screen. The Bible says in Luke chapter number 17 and verse number 20, he was demanded, speaking of Jesus, he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. And then in the chapter we're currently considering, Luke chapter 19 and verse 11, Jesus Christ was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And then a little later on in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 26, the Bible says, Then he said unto them, he's talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus during the late afternoon of, crucif of resurrection day. Jesus said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then... A few weeks later in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, on Ascension Day, the day Jesus will ascend and go back to heaven, the disciples, after spending 40 days with Jesus, learning about the kingdom of God, they said, just before Jesus ascended, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And we know from 1 Peter chapter 3, that in the last days, there'll come scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Peter talked about the fact that those who scoff at Jesus' words right up to the end will, use it, will be using the issue of time or when to their advantage. You Christians have been talking about Jesus coming back for 2,000 years. And he hadn't shown up yet. What a bunch of fools to still be talking about the coming of a Savior to establish a kingdom after 2,000 years of absence and silence. Scoffers still today mock we who are Christians and look for the coming of Christ. The Bible ends at the end of the last chapter by instructing us to pray, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You know, the issue of time is an important issue. It's an issue that we find throughout the Bible, when will this happen? When is all this going to occur? And, and then, of course, there's been a constant stream of preachers announcing that it has to come this week or this month or this year. I mean, it has to come because look at the world events and look at the moon and look at the astronomical signs in the heavens and look at this set of circumstances and look at this world leader and it has to happen this year. I remember Jack Van Impe came to the college I was attending when I was in Bible college and he had the students convinced that Jesus Christ was going to 
catch away the believers before graduation that next spring. This was in the fall. There were actually some engaged couples who dropped out of college at Christmas and got married, who were going to get married the next summer, but they were so convinced by Jack Van Ippie that the rapture was going to occur before the spring got there, they dropped out of college to get married before the rapture was going to occur. That was back in the early 1970s. There's always been a stream of preachers trying to convince people that they have an inside corner on the truth and they know when it's going to happen. And when it has to happen, time has, has been an issue amongst Bible believers throughout Christianity. Let me ask you a question. Has time ever been an issue with you? Have you ever found yourself wondering, is this, is this really true? Is, is he really going to come back? I mean, after all, it's been, it's been 2,000 years since he ascended back. Is, is, is this really, really true? Have you ever wondered if, um, if all this talk about a coming Savior, a coming King, is just so much talk but not real? Has the devil ever whispered in your ear doubts and encouraged you to rethink whether or not the Bible is true? Due to the absence of Jesus Christ, as the scoffers say, where is he if he's supposed to be coming back? Well, I want to encourage you this morning that the answer is in the Bible. Jesus talked a lot about the timing of things. Jesus taught constantly to correct the misconceptions of people about Timing. And you know, for us today, there really, there's really no excuse for us for being confused about time, about when. Uh, it, the, the, the apostles in Jesus' day didn't have any excuse for their confusion. We have less excuse because we have far more than they had. We have a completed revelation. We have our own copies of it. They had to go to the synagogue to hear their Bible read. And yet they didn't have excuse for their confusion. Why do I say they didn't have any excuse? They didn't have any excuse because God had been so faithful in giving the answer. Our text in Luke chapter 19 tackles the issue of timing regarding the kingdom of God. As Jesus Christ seeks to correct the misconceptions of his followers and explain to them what was lying ahead of them. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a different type of a Sunday morning. I'm reintroducing the Gospel of Luke and trying to jump back into a context that it's been a year since we've been studying we are one week from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as we turn to Luke chapter 19. Tomorrow, he's going to leave Jericho and go to Jerusalem and then ride a donkey into Jerusalem as their king. I mean, we're that close. 
We're right there. And Jesus Christ is setting the stage for his disciples to understand what is happening and what is in front of them. And so in order to reintroduce the gospel of Luke in this juncture of where we are, and to be able to set the stage for what is going to happen in the next seven days in Jesus' ministry, we need to do a little bit of... uh, of careful thought this morning, and really this morning is the introduction to next Sunday's sermon. This morning and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at a parable that may have been one of the most important parables that Jesus Christ ever gave. But there's no way to understand that parable unless you understand what those people living in Jericho understood When Jesus Christ spoke this parable to them on the cusp of Palm Sunday. So what's our message going to consist of this morning? Our message this morning is going to consist of, uh, we're going to focus on three different directions. And we're going to start, as you see on your little worksheet, we're going to start with the context to try to 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 get our feet on the ground with regards to where we are jumping back into the Gospel of Luke. Context is everything in understanding the Word of God. You've got to understand what the people understood who first heard what you're reading in your Bible. And if you don't understand their customs, their thoughts, their understanding where they were, then you won't understand what the Spirit of God was conveying to them. You'll read into the Bible from your Western culture in the year 2020 instead of understanding what the Spirit of God was conveying. And so we're going to take a little bit of a look at the context this morning and uh, and prepare for understanding this parable. We'll start looking at the parable, but we'll just get a little bit into it and then the 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 heart of it will be next Sunday morning. Now, the context has three parts to it. We're going to talk about the the Bible backdrop. We're going to talk about the historical backdrop. We're going to talk about the ministry narrative backdrop to this parable that Jesus spoke here in the text I read just a moment ago. So let's jump into the Bible backdrop and understand that... Israel had no excuse for misunderstanding this parable and misunderstanding the timing of the kingdom. Why do I say that? I say that they were fixated on a warrior Messiah. They, they were, they were, they just knew that the Messiah was going to come in riding a white charger with an army and wipe out Rome and establish the kingdom of God in Israel on earth. That's They couldn't get away from that. They were fixated on that. And Jesus was constantly combating that mistaken understanding. Now, why did they have no excuse for believing that? Because they had Daniel's prophecy. And Daniel's prophecy was very clear that the Messiah was going to be cut off. And that there would be a period of time after he was cut off of great turmoil and trouble before a kingdom was established. 
If they just read their Bible and studied their Bible, they would have known that Jesus was not going to establish a literal kingdom in Jerusalem at his first coming. Because Daniel's prophecy had already revealed that he would be cut off. Followed by a time of great trouble. And then finally, the establishment of the kingdom. They had Psalm 22 that graphically described the, the mindset of the Messiah as he was cut off. As he hung on the cross. They had Isaiah 53 that explained clearly that he was going to die for the sins of his people. If they just read their Bible. And many other prophecies. Those are two of the most well-known. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And then if having their Old Testament, their Bible, and the responsibility to understand their Bible. If that wasn't enough. John the Baptist comes along. And John the Baptist introduces Jesus not as a king. He introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Every Jew knew what a lamb was. Every Jew knew that for Jesus to be the Lamb of God means he's going to die viciously. His blood will be poured out. The innocent will die for the guilty. Every Jew knew that lambs were slain as the innocent being substituted for the guilty and paying the penalty of sin, which is death. And John the Baptist introduced Jesus not as the king. He introduced him as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus spoke to his apostles many times about his coming death. In Jerusalem. I mean, they had every reason to understand. And that's why Jesus, on the day of his resurrection, when he, when he met the, those two guys on their, walking down the road to Emmaus, and they said, oh, we just, we thought it was going to be him. We were so sure it was going to be him. And then the, and then the, the, the chief priest and the scribes turn him over and he's been crucified. And we, we were so sure it was going to be him. And what did Jesus say? Fools. Slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have said. See, they had no excuse. God had given them ample information to understand that Jesus was going to die. He wasn't going to be crowned king when he got to Jerusalem. You see, they had tunnel vision. All they could see was deliverance from Rome. All they could see was freedom from oppression. All they could see was we've got to get the yoke of Roman rule off our necks. That's all they could say. And that tunnel vision kept them from understanding their Bible. It kept them from listening to John the Baptist. It kept them from listening to the words of Jesus Christ. It left them slow of heart to believe and to understand. I mean, it's got to be now. And then this, this kingdom has got to be established now. After all, just a, just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for days. And man, did that ever create a stir. I mean, people all over the place were going out to Bethany to see this dead man who's alive. I mean, it created such a stir that the chief priests in Jerusalem said, we need to get Lazarus and we need to kill him. Because he's causing so many people to believe in Jesus. I mean, I mean, the, the excitement 
of Jesus raising a man from the dead. And it's, it's Passover next week. What's Passover? That's the celebration of our deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. Surely this has got to be it. Everything's lining up. Everything is pointing to This has got to be when the king is going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. But no, they were wrong. And Jesus had taught to make it clear. And they still aren't listening. And so now, the day before he goes up to Jerusalem to kick off Passion Week, Jesus will one more time endeavor to correct the tunnel vision false ideas of his followers and point them to the reality of what lies ahead. Well, that's the biblical backdrop of what is happening here. Let's look at the historical backdrop. This is something that is extremely important to be able to understand the parable. You'll read the parable and say, that was a nice story, till you understand the historical background of what's happening. You see, Rome was conquering the world, and their empire was spreading all over the place, and they were... They were taking over outlying areas, but Rome had a had a, a methodology to their conquering the world. When they would conquer an outlying area like the land of Israel, they didn't want to come and rule it directly. They would find somebody that knew the people, knew the customs, who would be loyal to Rome, who the Caesar at Rome could put in control to rule that area for Rome. That's how Rome operated. And so they would set up a king or a ruler to rule in their place. Now, there was a very important family that in biblical history it played a big role. And that was the Herodian dynasty, the family of Herod. Herod the Great. Herod the Great received the authority to rule Judea from Mark Antony in 41 B.C. And then later pledged his loyalty to the first Roman emperor, Octavian, who took the name Augustus and was known as Caesar Augustus. And so, so Herod became the king of Israel in the place of Caesar, representing Caesar in Israel. And he held that post until he died, which was about 4 B.C. Now, when you get down to the specific years of the birth of Christ, Jesus was born about 5 B.C. So how did Jesus Christ get born five years before Christ? And so there's, a glitch in the, there's a glitch in the calendar. And so Jesus was born five years before Christ, 5 B.C. Uh, Octavian, or, or Herod the Great, rather, was the king uh, in Israel until he died in 4 B.C. Herod the Great ruled the Jews until just a few years after Jesus was born, which means that he was the king who was ruling Judea when Jesus was born. He's the one that murdered all the babies in Bethlehem. 
Herod the Great was a ruthless, murderous man. He murdered his wife. He murdered his sons. He murdered thousands and thousands of Jews. Politicians ruled by fear. And he was a vicious man for 45 years. And the Jews hated him because of his vicious manner of ruling. But he's known as being a great builder. I mean, he built stuff all over the place. He built the, he built the, um, the renovation. He led the renovation project of the temple in Jerusalem and built the, uh, built the, uh, renovated the temple and the temple platform that from what had been built in the Old Testament. He also built the, uh, Mediterranean port of, uh, Caesarea Maritima up on the coast of the Mediterranean. The, the greatest Mediterranean seaport, the, the, the envy of the Roman world, the seaport at Caesarea, Herod built that. He also built the, what seemed to be an impregnable fortress of Masada down on the western shore of the Dead Sea. He also built the, the, um, fortress of, uh, of, uh, Machuris, uh, on the, on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. That's where his son, Herod Antipas, later had John the Baptist beheaded. Herod the Great built that. He also built the, the, his winter palaces in Jericho. The, the place where Jesus is in this stepping back into the book of Luke. Herod built his winter palaces there. And, and, and by the way, that's where he died in 4 BC. He died there in Jericho. And, and then he also built that amazing Herodium. It was on, it was just, just outside of Bethlehem. I mean, this is a mountain that slave labor created on a flat piece of ground. He built a mountain on a plain, and then he built a huge fortress on top of it. He had a, a swimming pool, big enough they sailed Big boats, sailboats, not like huge Mediterranean Sea ocean liner type, but, but sizable boats that they would have have boat races in his swimming pool. I mean, I mean this, and this, by the way, is where he died. And when you're standing up there on the top of the ruins of of the Herodium, you can see Bethlehem on the horizon. We stood there and we looked over and we could we could see Bethlehem when Jesus was born. He was born in the shadow of King Herod's Herodium, where King Herod eventually died. He tried to kill Jesus as an infant, and he was eventually buried in the fortress overlooking Bethlehem. He was uh, quite the builder. He died in 4 B.C., as I said. Uh, Augustus was still the Roman emperor. Uh, actually, this was just a few years after Jesus Christ was born. Now, when Herod died, his, he, his will specified that he wanted his kingdom to be delivered to his three sons. Here are the three sons that uh, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded, and Herod Philip. And, and this is what Herod the Great wanted. He wanted these three sons to take over portions of his kingdom. However, he had no authority to do that. That authority could only be given by 
Caesar Augustus in Rome. And so Herod wrote in his will what he wanted. And then Archelaus left for Rome after his dad died in order to secure the authority to rule that portion of his dad's kingdom, which was Judea, where Jerusalem is. And so Archelaus heads to Rome to meet with the emperor of Rome in order to be able to get permission to get authority to reign as king. But the Jews hated the Herods. They hated Archelaus as well as Herod the Great. And so they sent a group of, of men to trail him to Rome and to go to Caesar and to try to convince Caesar not to appoint another Herod as their king in Judea. They hated him and they did not want him to rule over them. And so that group did everything they could to keep Archelaus from becoming their king. But disappointing to them, Caesar Augustus honored Herod's will and divided the kingdom up as Herod had desired it to be divided up. However, he would not allow any of his sons to have the title king. He gave them other political titles as a appeasement to the Jews, but still put them in power there in the land of Israel. Archelaus then returned. He returned back to Israel. He now has the authority to rule. And so he promptly found the ones who had gone to try to keep him from becoming king, had them all executed, had all of their wives and children executed because of what they had done to keep him from being king. They hated him. And he got the last word, so to speak, in having them removed. By the way, while this was happening, Joseph and Mary is, are down in Egypt with little Jesus. And when they heard Herod the Great was dead, they started heading back to their homeland. But then they found out that Archelaus, his son, was ruling in Judea. And so they bypassed Judea and they went up to Galilee, back to their hometown of Nazareth. And they settled back in Nazareth, where, where uh, Herod Antipas was ruling. But he was not nearly as vicious as his brother Archelaus. Archelaus would only last for about ten years. And later on, another Roman-appointed ruler will be in his post by the name of Pontius Pilate. He's the one that's there now as Jesus is in Jericho getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And it'll be Pontius Pilate who will have an integral part of his execution there in Jerusalem. Well, that's the political backdrop. And when we look at the parable itself, you'll realize that you could not understand that parable the way the people in Jericho understood that parable. If you did not know what they had just lived through with the Herodian dynasty. So let's jump to Jesus' ministry narrative backdrop. Where are we in Luke's gospel? We know we're in Luke chapter number 19, but where is this in the narrative of Luke's gospel? Well, 
This is Israel. Got a lot of mountains, eh? One thing they've got in Israel is rocks. They've got lots of rocks in Israel. If you are a student of geography and love maps, you'll recognize that this is the Mediterranean Sea over here. And you'll recognize this is the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights. The springs up in Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights. Those springs feed the Sea of Galilee and it rushes out as a Jordan River that runs down the Jordan River Valley and dumps into the Dead Sea, which is right here off the map. You'll recognize if you look across the Mediterranean that you're looking at the island of Cyprus and oh, back over here would be Turkey and way over here would be Greece and Europe. Jesus Christ was born just south of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. And then they took him to Egypt, which is over here. And then they brought him back, side went around Judea, and they settled in Nazareth where he grew up. When he launched his ministry and baptized in the Jordan River and launched his ministry, the record of the great Galilean ministry kind of takes the focus. It was the longest portion of his ministry years. And all of that occurred up around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus Christ, far from the political problems of, the, of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ was able to teach and preach all that he preached and taught, the miracles that he performed to prove that he was their Messiah, and to teach them what that meant, and to challenge people to repent and believe in him. And those who repented and were forgiven of their sins were then baptized and the great Galilean ministry. Well, it came time in Luke chapter 9 for Jesus Christ to die. So Luke 9 says that he left Galilee and he made his way toward Jerusalem. And so Jesus Christ left the Galilee region and he started coming south. He ministered in Samaria. He came down and spent some time with his friends in Bethany there in Judea. He then went back up to Perea and he ministered in Perea. And we have read stories. We have studied and I've preached messages on stories of the people he interacted with and the things that he taught and what he did as he was moving towards his crucifixion in Jerusalem. Then that all came to an end in Perea. And it's now time. It's now time. So he made his way to Jericho. Jericho is the place where Jesus Christ has been in the last handful of messages. Jericho in Jesus' day consisted of the old ruins of Joshua's Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. And the Herodian Jericho that the Herods built with all of their palaces right on the road that leads to Jerusalem. If you go back a screen just for a second, from Jericho, they would, this 15 mile road is a treacherous road that goes from the level of the Dead Sea to the height of the Judean mountains. That climb was a serious journey, ascending up to Jerusalem, which Jesus which the reference that we ended with when I read the scripture reading this morning 
after he told this parable, he then ascended up to Jerusalem. So while he's in Jericho, Jesus Christ is ministering. He comes into Jericho. He comes through the old Jericho into the new Jericho. When he left the old Jericho and entered the new Jericho, he met some blind guys. You remember one of them by name, don't you? Blind Bartimaeus, right? Here's blind Bartimaeus. We've got a screenshot of him. Oh, just there we go. There's blind Bartimaeus. And uh, Jesus encountered blind Bartimaeus. Just a little sideline. One of the Gospels says that Jesus encountered blind Bartimaeus when he was leaving Jericho. Another Gospel says he encountered Bartimaeus when he was entering Jericho. Scoffers use that as an excuse to not believe the Bible. You'll go back to the previous Jericho, the two Jerichos. Blind Bartimaeus was right here. From one perspective, he was leaving the old Jericho. From another perspective, he was entering the new Jericho. You know, you can believe your Bible. And when someone says they've got a contradiction for you, mark it up. They just don't know the Bible. There are always answers in the Bible for the scoffers to what they're stumbling over. So Jesus met blind Bartimaeus. He also met Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus up in the tree, this traitor, this rich thief, this low life scum, this traitor against his own people. This thief that had robbed the Jews of, of Jericho blind. Ah, oh, but something's going on in his heart. We don't know what he had seen. We don't know what he had heard. We don't know what, what God had done in his life. But he wanted to meet Jesus. Something was happening in his life, in his heart. So much that this little short guy... Who was at a great disadvantage, vertically, uh, vertically, uh, what is it? Challenged, thank you. Vertically challenged. Uh, and so, he up in the tree to be able to see Jesus. And you know the story, how Jesus called him down out of the tree and went to his home. And that night, Zacchaeus got saved. I mean, he got a good dose of salvation. Oh, there's story after story as Jesus goes through Samaria and Perea, and now in Jericho, person after person, situation after situation, where the gospel of Jesus Christ rings out clear as Jesus Christ conducts his ministry. Well, verse number 11 of our chapter says, he, Jesus, in verse 10, Jesus, as Zacchaeus has gotten saved, Jesus said, that's what I'm here for. That's what it's all about. That's the purpose in it all. Seeking and saving lost people. That's what it's all about. And then the next verse says in verse number 11, as they heard these things, he added a parable. I want you to understand the parable is right in between and related to both Zacchaeus' salvation and a problem of their theology. Because he spoke a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. He's only 15 miles away from Jerusalem. And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And so 
The day before Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for Palm Sunday to ride into Jerusalem to the accolades of the people, Hosanna, son of David, king, Jesus once again works to correct the false doctrinal understanding of a tunnel vision people that think he's going to establish a kingdom when he gets to Jerusalem. And so Jesus Christ is going to explain what is to come through a parable. A parable, verse number 11 says. You know what a parable is? A parable is a story that Jesus would use to teach people things that were difficult for them to understand. So he, he took a story out of their own life, out of their own culture. Out of the way, what they were used to living in Israel 2,000 years ago. He would take something that would make sense to them. Something that they couldn't misunderstand. Something that they lived with regularly. Something they had full awareness of. He would take a story that was very meaningful to them in their culture at that time. And he would use that story to convey something that was spiritual. That they would miss if he didn't give them a simple story that they would understand in their culture. And so this parable that Jesus Christ tells is closely related to Zacchaeus getting saved. And the fact that Jesus is here to seek and save the lost. Not start a kingdom. He's here to seek and to save the lost. But they think the kingdom will immediately appear. So in between, Jesus Christ uses a story to convey to them something that they need to understand before Palm Sunday. That brings me to my final, oh no, that second, the second direction. The final one is just a reference. The second direction is the parable itself. And we're going to get into, we're going to look at the parable next week, but I want you to see the Three things about this parable. Verse number 12, Jesus Christ begins to tell the parable. He said, a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive a kingdom, to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. The nobleman is going on a quest. The nobleman is going to go. Let's go ahead and have that next screen, I think. What's that next? Uh, yeah, let's go beyond that. That's, they were walking right between Herod's palaces. So just as Archelaus left to go to a far country to get the authority to reign his own land, the land that he left. This nobleman is going to go on a quest. The nobleman is going to leave his own country. He's going to go to a far country to receive to himself the authority to rule over his own country as a vassal to the king that's ruling the world. That's the nobleman's quest. And then I want you to notice in verse 13, the nobleman's instruction. Before he leaves on this quest, he gets his servants. He's a nobleman. He's a rich man in his own country. He's a man of means in his own country. And so he gathers together his servants in his own country before he leaves on his, on his journey to a far country. He's a long ways away. He's going to be gone for a long time. It's a far away country. And he's going to be gone for a long time. And while he's gone for a long time, 
He wants his servants to stay busy building his assets in his own country that he's coming back to rule. And so he gives instructions to those, to those servants. And then I want you to notice the third thing. The nobleman has a problem in verse 14. The citizens of his own country hate him. Not his servants that he is giving instructions to. But the population base of the country where he lives. That when he gets authority from a faraway country, a faraway king, to rule his own people, and he comes back to establish his reign and rule his own people, those people hate him. They hate him. That's a problem. We will not have him reign over us. And so he's got a problem back home. That's the uh, second direction I want to just focus on for a moment. Because this is what makes the parable so meaningful. Understanding the historic backdrop and what Jesus Christ is saying in the parable that we'll look at last week, next week. Here's the, the third and final direction I want to focus on just for a moment. And that is the lessons. You see them down on the bottom of your worksheet is five lessons. We're going to build on this next week, Lord willing. These are some lessons that everyone in Jericho listening to Jesus tell this parable, they understand what this parable means because they hate the Herods. And they know what it is to be ruled by the Herods. And they remember when Archelaus, not too many years ago, went to Rome to get the authority to come back and rule over them. And they hated him and they didn't want him to rule over them. The people of Jericho listening to Jesus, they, this is crystal clear because of their history and what they understood. And so Jesus Christ comes back and tells the story. Five, five points to ponder for this for, that we'll look at more next week. Number one, Jesus planned to leave earth without establishing a kingdom. In Jerusalem, he had always planned to leave earth without establishing a kingdom. Daniel had said he was going to be cut off and there would be a period of trouble and he would come back after a period of time. Everything that Jesus had taught had encouraged people to understand. I'm here to seek and to save the lost. The kingdom's going to be later. Read and study and understand I'm going to go away. And I'm going to be gone for a long time. That's number two. Jesus always planned to be gone for a long time. A far country, Jesus said. The nobleman went to a far country. It's going to take a long time to get there. And then he's got to, he's got to convince them to give him the authority. And then he's got to travel all the way back from that far away country. Jesus always planned to be gone for a long time. Number three, Jesus planned to return to earth with the right to rule his world. Number four, Jesus is hated by this world while he's gone. We will not have Jesus reign over us. You will not tell me what to do with my body. You will not impose your morality on me. You will not tell me how to live. You will not tell me how to dress. 
how to live, what to meditate on, what to think about. You, I am my own person. You will not reign over me. We live in that world, don't we? All around us, people hate Jesus Christ. They don't want him to reign over them. Jesus told the story. He knew that's what it was going to be like. And finally, the overriding purpose of Jesus Christ has always been and always will be to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. That's what his ministry was all about. That's what his death was all about. And in the intervening time, while he's away receiving the authority from God the Father to come back and establish his kingdom on earth, we who he has left behind have one purpose, to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the closing teaching of Jesus Christ before Passion Week as he prepares to die in Jerusalem. Lord willing, next week we'll look at the parable itself. Now that we have a biblical and historical and a narrative from Jesus' ministry backdrop so that this parable isn't just something you flip your Bible to and you read it and say, that's a nice story. This is a huge story that is so vitally important in the purpose and plan of Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to take the time this morning to have a little bit of a, uh, a Bible study with you to get us ready to step back into the Gospel of Luke. God's taught me so much from the Gospel of Luke. It's, I've been so disappointed, but God knows what his purposes were, that it's been a year, almost a year. It was Thanksgiving. It was November of last year, the last time I preached, when I preached on Zacchaeus. It was Thanksgiving last year. And uh, maybe to you, maybe that's refreshing. Oh, we got away from Luke for a year. I'm looking forward to studying the week of Jesus' passion with you. To understand what was happening in the life of our Savior. Listen, if you're here today and you've never been saved, I want you to understand that the Bible is crystal clear that Jesus' purpose is to find you. To seek you out. To bring circumstances into your life that will cause you to be dissatisfied with who you are and where you are. To bring about people who will share with you things from God's word that you didn't know. Situations that will cause you to all of a sudden be at a place listening to something like maybe this morning. And the Spirit of God takes all of those situations and the Spirit of God deals with your heart. That's what happened with Zacchaeus. We just don't know the details of what God did for the two, three, four weeks, months before he climbed that tree. But I tell you, that traitor, that scumbag, that dirty, rotten thief climbed that tree for a reason. He was hungry. And all the money and all the things that he had acquired in Jericho. By the way, Jericho was the resort town. It was the, it was the resort of the wealthy. It was the winter palace place where the rich went for the winter to vacation. And Jericho was reaping 
the wealth off those rich people. And yet, it didn't satisfy him. Something was wrong in his heart. And he wondered, does Jesus have the answer? And up the tree. And he found that Jesus did have the answer. And he was gloriously saved. And Jesus announced, this is why I came. To seek and to save. And you may be here today and you may be thinking, you know, I'm not saved. And I'm not very happy with my life. And all the things I thought would bring me joy has left me empty. I so need answers. Jesus has the answers.